Hello everyone, my name is Rick, Rick Van Bruggen from Neo4j, and here I am recording another podcast episode. And I think the other person on the other side of this call is going to agree that it's been way too long. It I... has been way too long. <laughs> Hello, ML. It's been such a long time since we've done a podcast together. It has, and we all know who to blame for that. It's me, I know, I know, I know. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> but uh, thank you for coming back. Uh, it's the end of 2018. It, Christmas is upon us. Uh, so it feels like it's a good time to kind of uh, uh, review and, and see where we are. And, is this uh, your, your Christmas gift to me that you finally invite me back? Yes, it is. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, so, um so many things to talk about, obviously, right? But uh, our dear friend, uh, Luke, Luke Gannon, uh, from the Neo4j uh, professional services team, sent me this really interesting tweet idea, tweeted idea from a guy called David Perrell on things to talk about on a corporate podcast. And that's what was more for an internal podcast, but uh, I think we can do our own version of that. Is that okay for you? Sounds awesome. Sounds great. So the first thing I'd love to have a chat with you about is, you know, a little bit of a, you know, historical view, you know, where did we come from, but also, you know, vision, you know, what, what does the, what do you think about that we need to be doing with Neo4j and what's your, you know, more long-term oriented um, idea of, you know, what we contribute to yeah. industry? I guess there's two, two parts of that. One is kind of history looking backwards the other one is kind of vision and and future looking Absolutely. looking forward right yes. um, so let me I guess start chronologically then um, basically I've been doing this for all my professional life in one way or shape or form um, you know I uh, I grew up as a hacker uh, you know I um, really got my my probably you know quasi-professional feet wet, if you will, in the in the early parts of the internet, uh, doing online role-playing games, like text-based role-playing games. So the equivalent of World of Warcraft or or something like that. I'm sure there's way more <laughs> modern yeah, yeah. and updated yeah. versions of that, but but like online fantasy-based games, right? But they were text-based. This is in the early 90s. Um, I was a teenager at the time. Um, but really started running these, they were called MUDs at the time, um, and started doing them. Um, and at one point, you know, I was involved, uh, co-founded one of the more popular ones on, on the internet. At peak, it had like 100 players at the same time, <laughs> or something like that, which was, hey, that was a significant fraction of the internet in the, in the early 90s, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and then fast forward a couple of years, and I was working as a professional programmer in the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, as a, at an enterprise content management startup uh, mm -hmm. based in Sweden. Um, I rapidly grew to become the CTO and found that half of my team, we were about probably 20 engineers, something like that, and half of them spent the majority of their time fighting against the database. And we used like the classic stack that people used at the time, which was a relational database, you know, a business layer in an application server, and then a presentation, you know, web front type type presentation layer, right? Um, and in all my previous projects, the database had been a help. It had been an accelerator, 
right? But for some reason, it was really slowing us down. And that, you know, that reason we now know, like I think as an industry, we have a language for it and a much crisper understanding, uh, but it took us a while to figure it out. But it, in a nutshell, it was that there was this mismatch between the shape of the data that we worked with and the abstractions that were exposed, the building blocks that were exposed by the relational database. So we're doing content management, so that's, you know, files that belong to folders and folders that belong to those folders, which is a big kind of connected thing. And then we had this big security hierarchy where we have Rick and Rick belongs to, let's say, product marketing, which is a group. That group in turn belongs to both the marketing group and the product management group. And then you have to connect that security kind of hierarchical, but actually more than hierarchical structure with the content structure, which is also hierarchical or even more than that. And that just becomes a big mess of connected data. And we took all that, which is rapidly evolving, you had to resolve these permissions very rapidly, um, and just store that in tables. And that worked. It is mathematically proven that you can store anything in a relational database, right? So it worked, uh, but it's just very painful. It took a long time, like just you know, purely from a developer productivity perspective. It was also really slow in a runtime perspective, just purely performance, because you ended up with a lot of joins, which we know are one of the most, if not the most powerful mechanism you have in a relational database, but also really, really uh, uh, expensive to do. So that was kind of the birth of it. Um, we looked at that and saw that, huh, weird. Like, why do only we have this problem? There must be other domains where there's so much connected data. And then we kind of thought a little bit, it's like, um, okay, so probably other people have it today. What about tomorrow? Do we believe that there's gonna be more or less connectivity in the world, like going forward, right? And ultimately, I guess, you know, data models the real world. As the real world is becoming more and more connected, data will become more and more connected. And connected data, you know, exerts this pressure, this tension on the relational database paradigm like as every day goes on, that pressure will just be stronger and stronger. And back in the early 2000s, we couldn't say that, hey, exactly this particular date, it's gonna break for most applications. But we did feel like, you know, we're on the right side of history here. Like over time, there's just gonna be more and more applications where there's gonna be so much connected data, there's gonna be so much value in querying across relationships, across connections that people will start to move away from the relational database and not abandon it, they will augment it, put the connected data somewhere else. And did that all already make you feel like, you know, you were going to be able to answer like different questions because of that? Or was it, was it more of a speed thing that you were looking for at the time? Or what was it, what was, what was the main driver there? Yeah, it was more the latter. It was more that we, we saw this pain that we experienced already, not to do novel things, but just mm -hmm. to do basic things. Right. We wanted to do basic things that just involved a lot of connections. Right. Um, and we felt that, hey, if we perceive, you know, X amount of pain today, there's going to be more people with that level of pain X. Right. But also in this particular domain, it's going to be even more connected. So we're going to do 10 X pain tomorrow. Right. For some definition of tomorrow. So we, we only thought about it. At least I only thought about it from that perspective. Now, of course, fast forward to today, we know that this has uh, unlocked all kinds of new things that was just not previously possible. All right, let's talk a little bit about that, you know, because I've seen you on stage a bunch of times saying, you know, Neo, we want to help the world make sense of data. 
That's not familiar. It does sound familiar. I think, I don't know who wrote it. I mean, um, but what does that mean today? You know, I mean, we talk about things like ICIJ, Panama Papers, we talk about NASA, you know, but how do you you think that um, making sense of data, how we should look at that today and how that's going to evolve into the future? Yeah. I mean, so so maybe to back up a little bit for for podcast listeners. So, so help the world to make sense of data is our mission statement, right? And it's fairly precise worded. Um, it is help, you know. Um, it doesn't say do it, right? So maybe Google's at least their original mission was something like you know organize the world's information, make it universally findable, something like that, right? Um, so very clearly they are going to do it themselves. Uh, that's not what we do. Uh, we are tool builders. We enable other people to to do things. Uh, I listened to a, a podcast interview with Satya Nadella uh, a couple of months ago, um, and he said something very interesting. He said uh, about Microsoft. He said, um, basically, when when I Satya talk to potential new employees, um, and they and they ask me, hey, why should I join Microsoft? Why shouldn't I join I don't know Facebook or Google or whatever, right? Um, and what Satya then told them is that, hey, it's very simple. Like, if you want to be cool, you should work at these other companies. If you want to enable other people to be cool, you should work at Microsoft. And that's actually very much how I look at Neo4j as well, right? We we don't uh, organize the world's information. We don't ha- our, ourselves make, make sense of a lot of data, right? But we help other people do it. So that's kind of the help part of it. Um, and then we say, I don't think I need to talk about make sense of data, why that's valuable. I think a lot of people uh, appreciate how, how how important that is in order to have kind of data-driven, facts-driven discussions and decision-making. Um, then we say the world, and, and that's ultimately very ambitious, obviously, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it really is how I think about it. Um, you know, we don't just want to build tools and technologies for, I don't know, uh, big pharma companies in you know northern uh, in North America, right? Or financial services companies in London, or startup you know hipster startups in in South of Market in San Francisco, right? Ultimately, we want to help everyone make sense of data, and that's really really ambitious. And we try to be smart about it. And uh, you don't go to the market by building something for everyone. That's just not a smart way to do it. So there's a sequencing involved there, right? Currently, as as you well know, we're focused on businesses, and in particular on the commercial side, primarily we're focused on big enterprises, right? Because that's just a smart way of starting things out. But you know, two three decades from now, I, I can definitely see us targeting much more, more broader than that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, maybe that's a good segue to talk a little bit about um, our industry, right? Um, yes. It's been two years. Uh, since we since we spoke and man has that changed a little bit right <laughs> it has it's, uh, it's been uh, it's been it's been quite a journey um but you see you know lots of other people starting to talk about graphs you know there's uh, every man and their dog has a graph feature these days yes. uh then you see big behemoths like uh, amazon you know with a with their neptune offering you see um uh, yeah, you see other companies uh, offering new new technologies. What's your view on the industry these days? You know, how do you how do you look at them? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. So, um, 
When we got started, we came up with this kind of crazy notion that you could build a new type of database with a, with a new data model, right? And we weren't the only people that saw that the world was connected and that uh, like a graph perspective, a connected data perspective was valuable. Like a notable example is the RDF people, right? So RDF, I don't remember any more off the top of my head, but I feel like, like RDF was probably formalized in like 97 or something like that. Right, so a long time ago, even before we got started, right? So there's been a lot of other people who thought of it in, in, in that way, but we really moved it into databases. And we, and the kind of our particular angle on connected data was what's now known as the property graph model, right? Which I think is standing the test of time in terms of uh, adoption as a really pragmatic approach, uh, a really developer friendly approach to, to, to model connected data. But when back when we invented it, it wasn't clear how we would bring it to market, right? You could imagine, for example, that um, we could have brought it to the market as something like, hey, we're a database accelerator. We live right next to your real database, you know, also known as the relational database, right? Um, and we make some queries go faster. Like right? a cache or something. Yeah, like a cache or like an index or, or, you know, or something like that. That would be a completely viable path to market for the technology we had invented in the early 2000s, right? But we felt that, no, this is so important and it's going to be increasingly important over time that it deserves its own category, right? So Neo4j is an X, solve for X. What is X, right? You could call it a database. That kind of undersells it because it's, it's you know, qualitatively very different from a relational database. And ultimately, of course, you know, you know the story where we, what we ended up with was graph database. We tried out a bunch of different things. We tried network oriented database. We tried net-based, like network plus database. We tried a bunch of different things and it didn't work. But then when we used the word graph database, it just connected with people, no pun intended, right? It just resonated, right? Um, and when you, when you choose a category creation approach, like initially you're all alone, right? And my, my most um, recent example for this uh, is Levi Strauss, right? When, when they invented a new type of pants called jeans, right? They were the only ones who had jeans and they could have called it pants, but that would have kind of, no, they're, they're, they are different than other pants. Of course they are pants. They're different than other pants, right? And so initially they were the only provider of, of, of jeans, right? Now, of course, fast forward to today and all the pants companies, <laughs> whatever that is, <laughs> they, they, now, they now carry jeans, right? They have their own model of, of, of jeans. And that's exactly what we now have seen unfold for us, right? basically all the big enterprise software vendors right now have graph database offerings you know mm -hmm. with various level of, of maturity and that is a sign of success as you well know from from the inside i've been saying forever that hey you know what like we're very alone right now but that will the only way with, that we can stay alone is if we're not doing something that is valuable enough right because mm -hmm. if it's if it's valuable then other people will come in and compete against us and I think what we've seen, what, what has been pretty mind-blowing to me, it been, it's been two years since we did this podcast, that I guess was end of 16. Two years preceding that, in 2014, um, Forrester did this research note on the emerging graph, data, da, graph database market. And they were very early at the time at, at, at looking at this. And they made this amazing prediction that you've seen me use in slides a gazillion times back yep. in 2014, where they said, Three years from now, 
In 2017, 25% of the world's enterprises will be using a graph database. And I remember back in 2014, when I saw that, I was like, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to myself, I'm like, those guys are crazy. <laughs> it can never go that fast. <laughs> and yep. then, of course, a year ago, um, when I was on stage at Graph Connect, our annual conference in, in New York, um, as I was prepping for that, it was very timely because Forrester then released an update, updated report where they'd interviewed over 2,200 enterprises and asked about all kinds of questions about, are you using graph database? Do you plan on using graph database? And so on and so forth. And the result that came back was that over 50%, I think the exact number was 51% of the enterprises, the over 2,200 enterprises that they surveyed were actually using a graph database. Which is way more. <laughs> even more than what I thought was kind of a crazy thing. And I'm, of course, kind of the relentless optimist about graph database adoption, right? And so when you look at, at something like that, then you realize that, of course, Oracle is going to enter the market. Of course, Microsoft is going to enter the market. Of course, Amazon is going to enter the market. And as kind of the the early defining the the, I think, objectively, of course, I'm extremely biased here, but the, you know, objectively, we're the leader today. If you look at any kind of external metrics, um, that's both a scary and an amazing thing, right? It is, um, it is scary because it's competition. It is from some of the biggest companies on the planet, Amazon, Oracle, Microsoft, right? Um, but by and large, it's much more of a positive than a negative thing, because I think I 100% still believe that the biggest competition that we have is unawareness. It's people that have a problem because of connected data, but they don't think of it in that way. They think my database is slow or my fraud you know, detection application doesn't detect enough fraud or my recommendations are too bad or something like that. I mean, so they think of the symptoms, but the actual root cause is that they have connected data trapped in a form that is not good for it. For example, a relational database and they can't operate on it, right? And more people that can preach that and get the word out of that is uh, massively net positive for us. Couldn't agree more. Well, I mean, and that kind of um, begs the question, you know, how is how is Neo4j as a company doing, right? I mean, we had this fantastic announcement um, uh, in, I think, 1st of November, was it, when we, we closed another funding round, yeah. E-round, um, which obviously, you know, for us internally, it's always a great validation, you know, we we're happy about it it enables a bunch of things but you know as a company at the end of the day someday we'll have to <laughs> we'll have to make money and we'll, we'll have to we'll have to make sure that uh, our shareholders uh, get their fair reward yes um, because we're one both of us are <laughs> our shareholders <laughs> yeah very very correct yes absolutely yeah um but i just want to you know get your perspective on on you know how how is the company doing from your perspective? I mean, there's 250 people these days, uh, all continents spread all over, yeah. uh, big engineering group, big sales group. Yeah. You know, how is the company doing from your perspective? I think we're in a really healthy spot right now. Um, I think that um, one of the things that we talked about back in 2016, I remember, was we had just raised funding back then. Is, is that your algorithm, by the way? You're only willing to speak to me 
on the podcast to raise money. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that means it may not be another podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the IPO, right? IPO, that's what yeah, we're talking about. Then, then I'm worthy to be invited back. No, but one of the things that I remember us talking about back in 2016 is that we've always approached it a little bit differently, right? Um, and And, you know, being a, a Silicon Valley company, but with European roots, um, if you look around in the Valley, like one of the things that you see is that there's a very tried, true and proven model for how to build these companies. And it's basically, you know, you raise crap load of money. And that's that's a technical term, by the way, a crap load of money. Um, and uh, and then you build a product and you open source it if it's an infrastructure kind of developer facing product. Um, or you already open source it and you raise money on the back of that. And then you uh, build up a small organization, you get it out there in as many, many hands as possible. Like you talk about maybe eyeballs, you talk about download numbers, adoption numbers and things like that. On the back of that, you raise even more money. And then maybe you start selling a little bit and then you sell the company. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, and that's a little bit tongue in cheek because there's a lot of great companies. There's a there's a new generation of open source companies that I that I admire. Uh, there's you know some some more recently public ones like um, MuleSoft, uh, like uh, Elastic, like Mongo that I think are really high quality companies. Uh, there's uh, like a, a crop of um, of private companies a, a, as well, like Confluent. Uh, the Kafka company, for example, mm -hmm. and that, that are building it in a different way. But but by and large, that's a little bit the value model. And I've never subscribed to that. I've always felt that, yes, of course, it's infrastructure software. Um, and um, when you go up against huge competitors, Amazon has a massive balance sheet. Oracle has a massive balance sheet, right? Um, then it really helps in order to, to have investor funding. But by and large, I want to run this in a customer-funded fashion, right? I want to grow alongside our customers because that's just a much more healthy way of building a business. And I'm trying to kind of do this mix of a more, let's call it a more kind of European way of running it versus a, a more Silicon Valley way of, of, of running it. And I'm not, I don't want to be exclusive in either bucket. I think there's a happy middle path in, in, in there. And I think so far I've been extremely happy with how we've executed on that. Well, I would agree, right? I mean, I remember actually uh, not not long after we did our last podcast, there was this blip in the stock market in uh, in Silicon Valley uh, yeah. early 2017, right? And internally, we went through this phase where we actually returned to cash flow positive really, yeah. really quickly, right? It uh, yeah. was it was a really great example of how you could uh, actually control your own destiny much, exactly. much, much safer yeah. that way. And, and I think that that is just a, a really important constraint for me. That's how I look at it. Like, no matter how much money we raised, and obviously the series, like $80 million, that's that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. Uh, but no matter how much money we raise, I always want to make sure that we can get to cash flow positive without drastic things like, hey, let's riff, which is an American riff is like reduction in force, right? So I don't have it. Yeah, yeah, let's 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 lay off a third of the company. Then of course you can get to, to cash flow positive. But no, I want to be able to get to cash flow positive and control our own destiny without anything drastic like that. And I'm I'm the last guy you should talk about when it comes to predicting the stock market. 
I am, <laughs> I am consistently wrong about that. Um, but I do feel, look, we're at a, a 10 year all time high, you know, type thing. And, you know, as we're recording this in, in December of 2018, the past month or so, you've seen a lot of fluctuation on, on, the, on the stock market. You know, in the next few years, again, I've been consistently wrong when I've been predicting stuff like that. I still think that there's going to be something pretty dramatic. Like, yeah, there's going to be some big cor correction. And then being able to um, to meter your investment and come back to cash flow positive if you, if you need to, it's just a really fundamentally healthy thing. I agree. I have um, two more things that I wanted to chat to you about. Um, and uh, you know this uh, this other guy, David Beryl, he 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 was suggesting that we talk a little bit about you know how decisions are made inside a company. Yeah. And uh, it's a really fascinating one because internally, then uh, you've been advocate about this whole idea of trying to get to consensus without gridlock, without deadlocking, uh, you know, and, and and making sure that we we get things done, but at the same time respect each other in getting to those decisions. And um, and recently, I mean, the past 12 months, we've done some massive uh, changes to our leadership team, right? And uh, the people that make decisions like uh, you know, Lance Walter or Mike Asher or Denise Persson now, you know, on the board, those are like really important people because they will influence decisions in a major way, right? Yes. So, um, so I was wondering how you look at you know decision making, but also the changes that you that you've made to the management team, to the board. Um, an interesting topic, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, this is obviously a topic that we could do five podcasts just absolutely <laughs> on this one because uh, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I have pretty strong opinions about it but I mean I think in a in a nutshell um, there's always this this balance I think in an organization between uh, like a more authoritative way of running the company versus a more consensus way of running the company and I think um, there's uh, there's no doubt that at both of the extreme like both of the extremes are really bad I think most people would agree with that. However, reasonable people can disagree on kind of in the in the very broad mid-range of that spectrum where you should be. And in that broad mid-range of the spectrum, I gravitate much more towards consensus. And consensus is a funny thing, right? Because as as you know, I'm a I'm a freaky mix of European and American, <laughs> right? In that I've lived whatever eight, nine years of my life in, in the US, but I was born in um, born in Europe, um, and and what I've learned in in America, in American business culture, like consensus is seen as a very very bad thing. And what it took me a while to understand was that what people perceived as consensus was waiting for everyone to agree before you execute. And that I couldn't. That's horrible. Like if that is your your management style, that's a really really inefficient. I mean. Darwin will make sure that those companies, <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's, so that, you know, that, that you don't survive for long if that's how you, how you operate. Um, but having said, so I, I call that bad consensus. And yeah. um, what I call good consensus, however, is when you have a very clear um, decision-making process that for every single decision, it's very clear who owns that decision, who is accountable for that particular decision. Um, and when the people then execute along that, let's say there's a project with 
you know, three, four people who are going to do something, right? And maybe it is a, an internal systems cleanup. Maybe we're migrating to a new CRM, or maybe it's, an, it's a customer project. Maybe it is um, uh, some like a product roadmap project or something like that. If you have a tight, small group uh, that is going to execute on that, as long as you hire smart people who are really committed, it's way more efficient. They will execute much, much better if they are aligned with that direction. If you get them to buy into that direction, that is mm. always what I optimize for. I want those to, those people to agree. Now, if you're looking at 200 people, you can't get 200 people to agree. But anyway, 200 people aren't working on a singular task anyway, right? Mm. Um, but if you have that small group of people and you can get them all to agree that this is the direction that, that we're going, they will just execute better. And why? Because ultimately, I think one of the strongest powers in the universe is intrinsic motivation. Intrinsic motivation. When you do something not because we dangle dollars or euros, you know, before you, but we, you, you do something, you want to go to a place because you intrinsically believe it's important to go there. Right? You want to go there. Yeah. Exactly, right? And if And part of unlocking that is getting people to um, agree that that's the best way to go. Now, it's really important to, to pair that up. And this is to your, your point about um, bad consensus, which has these deadlock problems, right? Uh, this actually has all kinds of um, symmetry with distributed transactions and things like that, which let's not get into that. No. But you need to avoid that. You need to couple that with disagree and then commit. And disagree and then commit is the fact that for every one of these decisions, I mentioned that before, it has to be clear who actually owns that decision. And it's up to them to say, all right, hey guys, we've debated enough. Like, we're not going to get to agreement here. Now let's disagree and then commit. And then we need to have a really strong culture of actually, you know, when, when the person who is in charge of making that particular decision is pointing in that direction, now it's not a democracy. You know, where I'm going to disagree, but I'm still going to commit to that direction. Um, and so that's one of the most important tenants for how I want to uh, run the company. So I think that was one A of your question. Yes. In, in, in yeah. terms of in terms of one B, yeah. I mean, there's been a lot of changes. I think um, since early seventeen, uh, like half of the management team has has changed in some way, shape, or form. Um, you know, Avad Sakaria joined as our first corp dev biz dev leader um, in I guess summer summer of seventeen. You mentioned Lance Walter who joined us our new CMO, I think Jan of this year, so about I guess about a, a year ago. Mike Asher joined us, our first CFO this summer. Um, we've done a lot of changes on the board in conjunction with this funding round, also added a new independent Denise person who's the, the CMO of Snowflake. Um, so there's been a lot of, of, of changes in the past uh, 12 to 18 months. And the way that I look at that is just a, as a very natural part of the growing up process. Right. You now look between between the board and the management team. You have a lot of people with experience taking companies public, but also selling companies to uh, to, to bigger companies. Right. And you know, as you and I have talked about many times and as I talked about talk about in in onboarding and in um, um, in actually also in, in interviews with candidates is that um, obviously we've raised money and we talked about kind of fiduciary duty to shareholders before. I mean, that's one of the most important jobs of the CEO and 
and I do take that really, really seriously. Um, you know, this is uh, people like a lot of real money that have gone into the company, like pension fund money and things like that. I mean, that's that's not that's not nothing. Um, and I, I think it's really important that we return that capital, right, and give them really good returns. Um, having said that, in my day to day. I don't think about that. I don't think about IPO. I don't think about selling the company. I think about building a really high quality, good company, building a product that people love, solving real problems for real customers who are willing to part with some of their lovely dollars because it's so valuable <laughs> that we that we solve those problems, right? Um, if you do that and you focus on that, all else will follow. Such a beautiful note. We could have ended there, but I have one more thing I wanted to ask you. You know, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's about the future. It's about um, you know plans for uh, both the company, but also you know the the, the products and um, you know what's what's driving our success in the market, really, right? Um, well, what, what, what's your what's your take on that? You know, where, where do you where? What's your crystal ball say? Wow, that's a that's a broad question. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm curious where you'll take it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, there's a lot. Uh, uh, there's there's a lot to say. That that's another four or five podcasts <laughs> if we so choose. Um, well, I guess let me let me choose one particular angle on it. Um, I think that. Yeah. Um, let, let me add two things together that we that we talked about in, in the podcast so far. One is that Forrester prediction, the 25% that they predicted back in 2014 that ended up being more than 50%. Um, and then let's take the, the recent round of funding that we did. So it, if you look today, um, over 75 uh, of the Fortune 100 are now using Neo4j. 20 of the 25 biggest banks in the world are now using Neo4j, seven of the 10 biggest retailers, four of the five biggest telcos. These are some pretty amazing numbers, right? Of course, yeah. Um, and it's, it speaks a lot. It says a lot about the value of using uh, connected data, right? And, and the way that I think about that is that um, I now look at the past 10, 15 years of my life and I see two broad waves of graph adoption. And what I start seeing right now is this early embryonic phase of a third massive wave of graph adoption. And the first wave was very clearly what happened in the early 2000s in the consumer web, right? This is the stuff that we've talked about so many times where you know Google came into the, the web search market and they said, hey, we're gonna do everything identical to how Yahoo and AltaVista and Excite and Lycos and all these other search companies, how they do it. We're going to download all the web pages in the world. And when you search for Rick Van Bruggen, I'm going to look inside of each one, every one of these documents. Um, but on top of that, we're also going to extract how they're connected. And we're going to rank the search results based on that. And that's page rank, right? That one innovation unlocked the most valuable company of that era, right? Google, right? And the same is of course true for LinkedIn, which if you compare it to the other professional uh, kind of, um, I guess, 
recruiting sites, dice.com, monster.com, and so on and so forth. The one innovation that LinkedIn had was that not only did they store the profiles and the jobs that were available, but they stored how people were connected to each other, the professional network. And we can go on and about, there's so many examples of this. If you just add up some of the most obvious examples of companies that have gone into the respective market and reshaped it around connected data, use connected data to build much better products, uh, that's over a trillion dollars worth of market cap. Over a trillion dollars worth of market cap. That's pretty amazing. I see that as the first wave of graph adoption. The second wave of graph adoption is what we are surfing right now. That's the 76 of the Fortune 100. That's, that's exactly the same thing that happened in the consumer web, but in the enterprise, right? And that, that's, that's the enterprise taking their existing standard um, use cases, things like fraud detection, which existed before connected data, it just used uh, isolated data. And then they start building much better fraud detection with this, which exerts competitive pressure on the banks that aren't using connected data for fraud detection, because the, one, the ones that do capture more fraud, right? And that means something in the market. And the same with the recommendations, right? There were recommendations before people used, used connected data. But now with, with connected data, they can do better recommendations, which would drive more top line for the retailers, which will exert competitive pressure on them. So that's the second wave of graph adoption. What I see right now is the, what I believe is the third wave of, of, of graph adoption is what's going on in AI and machine learning. And one of the most exciting research paper that was published, I think, this year in that world was uh, uh, the really like an amazing group of blue chip AI researchers. These are the, the Google DeepMind people. It's, uh, it's the, um, uh, um, the, a bunch of people from MIT. And there's just this absolute top tier AI researcher authored paper, which basically says, in order to take the next step in, in, in deep learning and machine learning, we have to look at graphs. And of course, one of the key things that we see emerging right now, and you, you see it out in the field, right? Um, and I see it, I talked about it at Graph Connect, is people using connected data to provide better predictive uh, capabilities for AI and machine learning. I, th I think that is as big of a wave as what's been going on for five years now inside of the enterprise, when the enterprise is taking their standard applications, not new applications, standard applications, and power them with connected data. Right now, we're starting to see the early, the first innings, if you want to use a sports me metaphor, a baseball sports metaphor, which I'm as clueless as you are probably, <laughs> fellow European, yeah. we're the first inning of that going happening in, in, in AI. Mm. And that I think is going to be just this massive wave uh, for anyone in the graph, uh, broader graph technology landscape uh, over the next 10 plus years to come. We've seen some fantastic examples of that already, right? With customers yep. and users alike. Uh, it's been really great. Well, that's a really positive note to end on. <laughs> I, I thought so. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Emil. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you again. And uh, again, we're going to end with one last promise, right? Yes, let's not make it. I, last time we said, let's not make it 18 months, and then we made it 20, uh, 24 months. Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. How are we going to live up to this now? I, I think we've lost our credibility here. Damn it, damn it. But at the latest, at the IP, after the IPO, right? <laughs> at the latest, after the IPO. <laughs> okay. No, so we'll we'll talk before. At least now we're sandbagging the numbers. So for sure, we're going to be able to, to, to deliver on this one. Mm -hmm.